The banker's worst nightmare is coming to Canberra. And what is Australia's secret Mideast mission that risks world war? Coming up on today's Citizens Report. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 2nd of November 2023. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, we're going to be discussing the nightmare coming to Canberra. The banks will not be happy. No, uh, I'm, I'm taking it. <laughs> we'll reveal who the nightmare is or what the nightmare is shortly. It's either you or <laughs> the Postal Bank. <laughs> uh, secondly, we're going to talk about uh, the secrecy shrouding Australia's mission to the Middle East. Yep. Um, so we'll get into that soon. Which, which indicates there's something um, bad afoot. Yes. Now, uh, don't forget to help get the show circulating by hitting the like button, making a comment below, uh, subscribe and ring the notification bell so you yourself can be informed of new material that, again, you can help circulate uh, all of that helps to get the word out and you can also hit the donate button to assist us in all these campaigns, help get Robbie up to Canberra, all those uh, related initiatives, the literature we're pouring out across the country on our banking campaign. And speaking of donating, uh, Elisa, I think one way people can is subscribe to our Australian Alert Service, which as we tell people, like what we do on the show doesn't mm-hmm. do justice to the content. It's based on the content of the alert service but doesn't do justice to it. So we really recommend people um, get a subscription of this and in this week's we, you know, we have coverage of a subject we're about to talk about which is Westpac's decision with Cuba PD. Um, uh, we've covered Dale Webster's article on that came out in um, the, the latest uh, APRA data on bank closures and how you know one of the problems is the way APRA collects data. We've got we were playing the clip, but we've got Senator Malcolm Roberts confronting Australia Post um, in a very important Senate testimony. Um, uh, Richard Barden has covered the fact that Anthony Albanese went to Camp Washington, sorry, uh, to lobby for Orca submarines, mm. but was very, very weak when it came to something he should have been lobbying for, which is Julian Assange. Um, Cameron Leckie, and we'll be covering this on the show, but Cameron Leckie has written an article about Australia's deployment to uh, uh, the Middle East called A Price Paid in Blood, Australia Secretly Deploys to Another Middle East War, where he's asked these questions. You've covered the financial blowout that's coming from the, on the top of the US debt crisis, basically, preparing mm-hmm. for a US financial blowout. Um, and a very important article, Ditch Neoliberal Economic Consensus for Good, Not Just Green. And it's about how, you know, the, um, the, they're, they're willing to do things to, to uh, they use the, the, the green agenda, net zero, etc. Oh, we have to do direct government investment in those areas. And our argument is, if we had been doing direct government investment in a lot more areas, we wouldn't have been in the economic crisis we are. So we've covered that in this week's membership edition of the Australian Alert Service. The information is really important. If you subscribe to it and, and, and keep up with this stuff, you'll be very effective in helping to spread the word. So please consider doing that. And it supports us at the same time. Yeah. Uh, right. So our first topic, the banker's worst nightmare, is coming to Canberra. 
So we have big news to reveal this week, uh, and that is that you received an email inviting you to testify uh, at the the parliamentary inquiry into the closure of regional bank branches. So this is the ongoing inquiry into which we've been making a huge intervention across the country all through the year. So I want to run a poll. Should I accept the invitation? (laughs) Uh, Of course we're going to accept the invitation. I, do they do they know what they're getting themselves into? And this is the first of December, I should yep. add. So eight thirty um, uh, a.m. Friday, the first of December, I'll be in Canberra giving testimony, and my testimony is about one subject: the public bank solution. That is a solution to this branch closures crisis, but it's a solution to a lot more things. Um, and other people I know have been invited to testify, including. Uh, the Licensed Post Office Group and its Executive Director, Angela Cramp. Um, they endorsed the public postal bank solution. Uh, Dale Webster, the independent journalist whose you know, sheer body of work is what drove this whole inquiry, uh, she'll, she's been invited to testify as well. Um, so this is very important, but the reason we call it the banker's worst nightmare is because they will do anything to not have to compete with a public bank, right? And... We have worked really hard, Elisa, to take on the mentality for, for years now, decades. I mean, we, we, were, we were pushing the public bank before they privatised the Commonwealth Bank, mm. right? And when they privatised it, we opposed it and we warned against it. Um, and then we've got a quarter of a century later, we've been flying the flag all that time. Um, but what we were up against all those years was this mentality of politicians, which was a neoliberal ideology brainwashed into them mm. of, oh, no, no, the government shouldn't have a role in the financial system, shouldn't have a role in the economy. Um, so we had to take that on. And the banks had the upper hand. They have the biggest lobby group, the most powerful lobby. In fact, even um, the, the, the one of the Teals, Dr. Monique Ryan, has just talked about putting up a bill to limit the ability of lobbying in Parliament House. Mm. And she named the big corporations that do the most lobbying. She started mm. off with the banks. They knock on everybody's door mm. all the time, right? So they're very, very powerful. They intimidate the politicians. And we've just been pushing this point and saying, no, no, you've got to take that on. Um, and so most of the time, what I'm going to present has never had a chance to be presented in for, that forum, for in a quarter Parliament. of a century, mm. right? Well, it's going to be on the 1st of December. Mm. And Bankers, brace yourself. Yeah, and viewers, stay tuned because you they'll be able to watch that sure, live, right? you can watch it live online mm. on the parliamentary we'll website. We'll make those details closer, uh, available closer to the event. Now, um, this is happening in a certain context, which is the context <clears throat> that we've created with the help of numerous councils across Australia and yep. business people and citizens that are outraged at what is happening to the closure of banking services what's happened to Australia Post being forced to take on those banking services and not properly compensated for it and so forth. And this issue of access to banking services, access to cash, as you will know, I mean, you know that, hear about it as much as we do, is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. Now, um, just for instance, last week, I heard a segment on 3AW where they were reporting on the latest figures from the Reserve Bank, which said that in August, over $8.5 billion was withdrawn from ATMs nationwide. And so they were talking about the fact that supposedly cash is meant to be dead, but it's not. And a businessman called in uh, who said he just described, and he's not that far out of Melbourne, 
had to do a 45 minute round trip regularly to do banking. And he said, look, I don't really want to take cash anymore because it's just a hassle. So as we've been saying, the banks are front running this whole agenda because they're turning people off, turning businesses off from using cash. Um, And it was funny because the host intervened to say, look, I can see how it's in the tax department's interest to go completely digital. I can see how it's in the bank's interest to go digital. But what about the customer's interest? And they had... um, Uh, Sally Tyndall on from RateCity.com who was commenting on this and she said, well, look, personally, I've gone almost fully digital, but she said that's not the point. And she pointed to people who buy things secondhand, you know, on the internet, Facebook marketplace and so forth that you'll always see people will only take cash because they're so worried about scams and things like that. And her words were, look, cash has legitimacy, immediate legitimacy. So it's not going to be replaced anytime soon. And remember a few weeks ago when they had the last hearing in Canberra, the the banks all said, hand on heart, Mm. we have no plans to get rid of cash. We support cash. Cash is important. But as you just showed, they're taking, they make it impossible for people to use, Mm. right? So they speak with forked tongues. Yes. And... Now you've got in a case yeah. of how a whole town is being ruined by it. Well, and this is, we, um, you know, drew attention to this because we knew it was going to become a horror story yep. um, last year, I guess it was. And that's the case of Cooper Pedy, who was facing losing its last bank, uh, Westpac Bank. And now there's a story that's come out uh, on ninenews.com.au uh, interviewing people from the town because they um, have indeed lost their bank uh, since uh, February. February. Compliments to the journalist too, Lisa Emily yeah. McPherson. This is an excellent report on, you know, it's a it's an update. It's six months later. What's happened to this town now it's yeah. lost its last bank? So as she reports, they people have an exhausting 11-hour round trip on a hot and dusty highway through the middle of nowhere with patchy internet coverage just to get to a bank. Um She reports there are ATMs in the town sitting empty, cash is stuffed in safes and businesses are sometimes resorting to sending staff with tens of thousands of dollars down an unsafe highway with internet black spots. Uh, There's lots of illustrations. Two and a half hours, so 540 kilometres away, so that's, say, a five-hour round trip. A five-hour trip one way. Half of that, there is no mobile coverage. Mm. And she reports on the Senate inquiry and um, some of what the banks have, how they've responded, which I'll get you to go through in a moment. But um, she talks about, of course, that the town relies on the post office, but customers can't do certain things. They can't open bank accounts. Um, They can only withdraw $2,000 and they can only deposit up to $7,000. And there's a few people interviewed. Firstly, Chris Pantalis, who owns the Coobapedi Shell Petrol Station. He said, look... um, the the ATM, which is at his business, is empty a lot. He said, we used to go to the bank and pull out fifty to $70,000 and put it in the ATM. Now I can only put in what we get over the counter and the dribs and drabs I get in the restaurant. I haven't had $20 notes in it since February. So if you don't have $50 in your bank account, you can't get cash out pretty much. A lot of other businesses, I've noticed their ATMs are always down because they just can't put the money in. He said, we've got dead money. Every week we get about $3,000 worth of change in 50-cent coins, $2 coins, all that sort of stuff. We're holding thousands of that now in a safe. 
So he said it's a safety issue and he talked about the two and a half hours on the highway where there's no mobile coverage at all. Um, So if something happens, you've got no recourse. Uh, He said people all assume we've got money in our cars and driving on the highway to the city. That's my biggest concern. Um, Then they interviewed Corey Naylor, the general manager of two big hotels in Cooper Pedy, who said he's still trying to find a solution for the hotel's busy periods when the amount of cash coming in far exceeds the 7,000 daily limit they can bank at the post office. Um, The bank being closed is hard, but then companies like Armaguard and Prosego are also not wanting to service the town either. They've been trying to get them to run a service. And the treasurer of Cooperpedia's Italian club, Sabrina Troisi, she said they'd not been able to deposit any cash at the post office because their bank account didn't have a linked bank card. So they simply can't deposit anything. Um, They would send uh, one of the club members to um, go and bank the money. Um, But, yeah, oftentimes that is not possible to happen. Um, now, Michael Edgecombe from the community group Cooperpedia Together said there's a lot of... It's a big opal town. It's the biggest um, in Australia or the Southern Hemisphere, I think. Um, so opal buyers prefer to use cash when striking deals on precious gemstones, um, particularly because they're coming to a town where they know that they might not have access yep. to Wi-Fi or it might be down, yep. so they carry cash. As do the tourists for the same reason. And there's a gem sh- trade show every year, so it's always but a they'll big... They'll reports that Opal buyers will turn up with as much as a half a million dollars in cash. Mm. And they do the deal, and then the Opal trader has that cash to deal with. And previously, they could just go put it in the bank, and now they can't. And then he also drew attention to the fact that you have um, Aboriginal Australians and others in town who rely on being able to open accounts, get replacement cards, check identities, all sorts of things that you can't do at the post post office. office. Uh, And then there's a lot more commentary on the fact that, you know, Westpac, for instance, has said that 96% of its customer transactions are now digital. (laughs) Customers who only use a branch represent around 3% of our 13 million customers, said CEO of Westpac, Peter King. So, in other words, too bad. Look, let's start with those statistics first. Right, like, I'll try not to rant, but these people infuriate me. So, first statistic, 96% of Westpac's transactions are digital. Who cares? Like, seriously, we showed this on our show before. A percentage does not reflect the absolute number. It doesn't mean that cash-only the transactions had dropped down to something you can only measure as 3%. We have shown that because of the nature of technology, because you've got a generation of kids out there that have been given these t- mobile phones like lollies, right? And I'm embarrassed to tap for something that's, that's a dollar, but my daughter's not. No child is. Like the number of actual transactions in Australia has skyrocketed and they're mostly useless transactions, right? They're little itty-bitty transactions, and the bank still finds a way to get their little cut of those. So if 96% of Westpac's transactions are digital, I don't care, Westpac. 3% are not, and those 3% are a lot more than you're pretending. That's one point. The, the second statistic there was only, get this, think of the wording here, customers who only use a branch, hmm. only, Represent 
around 3% of our 13 million customers. What about the people who use their phone or use an ATM and still use a branch? Sometimes use a branch. That's actually quite, that that figure, why isn't he citing that figure? Mm -hmm. Why isn't he telling us what percentage of his customers do use a branch sometime? Right? No, he wants to cut away so that the little old lady on the Zimmer frame represents that 3% because she can't do anything else. But a lot more people do require branches. Lisa, I don't use branches very much. But recently, I needed to finalise a large transaction in a short period of time. And the only way to do it was to run down to that branch. Right, So that kind of um, deliberate deception through statistics, the, 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 the 19th century British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli used, came up with this immortal term. There's lies, there's damn lies, and there's statistics, right? And whenever you see that kind of stuff, call BS. So that's one point. But this is a town that's living in fear. That's what this, this is a really important article, like I said, by Emily McPherson. She's documented they're living in fear. They're... they're, they're um, they're, they're lying, they're, some of them called it a nightmare. They're thinking, man, we're a security risk with all this cash. We've got to put it in a bank, but we've got to run the gauntlet mm. down to there. And as this, as more people become aware of this, we're going to start attracting an organised crime element, knowing there's, knowing it's easy pickings in this area. All people have to do is position themselves along that track mm. and look for any car driving south in the, in the black spot, right? And they'll all be sitting ducks, right? This is the kind of mentality that the people of Cooperpedia have to live with. But this is an interesting case for the bank branch closures because of this reason. Cooperpedia has never ever run its economy any differently ever. Ever. It has not changed with the world. It is an opal and tourism economy and the internet's not reliable enough for it to suddenly become this digital paradise. So it, it did not change and it has only ever had one bank ever and that's Westpac. Only ever had that one bank. So Cooperpedia, Westpac had a business model in Cooperpedia that worked for worked, it. Yeah. It worked for it. Cooperpedia did not change. What changed? The scum buckets who run Westpac is what changed. Westpac changed. They decided they were going to become this digital bank right, and stuff real customers. And what's really infuriating about this is it didn't have to happen because um, when the inquiry got up in early February, the first thing the, the um, committee did, the Senate committee under Matt Can- Senator Matt Canavan did, is he wrote to all the banks saying, P- please pause any branch closures pending the outcome of this inquiry. That was on the 10th of February. You can go to the committee website right now, and in fact, I'll, I'll get the producer put up on the screen, and see Westpac's reply to that letter. It's short and sweet. And Westpac's reply said, we will pause the branches, the branch closures we announced in February. Thank you very much. We're happy to, to help with the, with, with the inquiry. That week, Westpac got all this good press the press, the, the politicians praised them. Yeah, Westpac's complying with the request. The press um, praised them. But me, the Citizens Party, and poor old Dale Webster, the, we were screaming our lungs out. We're on the phone. I was calling up members of parliament saying, 
I was calling up everyone in South Australia I could, because Cooper Pete is South Australia, and saying, this is not true. They mentioned eight, there's only eight branches that they announced were closing in February. There's seven others that are also closing, and they're ignoring those. And they're closing next week. So on the Cooperpedia was scheduled to close on the 17th. Mm. So on the 10th, they didn't even mention it in the letter. You sit, look at the letter on the screen. There's no mention of these seven branches that were slated to close. And two of them were towns with only one bank, Westpac. So on the 17th was Cooperpedia. On the 24th, a week after that was Carnima in Western Australia. And we're saying, why are you letting them get away with closing? They're going to keep closing those branches, mm. right? And they did. They went ahead and closed them. If they hadn't have closed it, what happened next? Westpac got such a toweling up at the first hearing. They were invited to the Cloncurry hearing. They said, we don't want to go through that again. Here, we'll keep the branch open and we'll keep all eight of those branches open permanently. And that's what they did out of desperation and the pressure of the, of the inquiry. And if they had of not been deceptive in that letter and actually paused those seven, including Cooperpedi, it would still be open today. And those people of Cooperpedi would be able to bank their cash and run their businesses properly and keep doing what they've done since the dawn of time or, or when people started living in Cooperpedi, right? But because that bank was so deliberately deceptive in that letter, mm. history has w worked out very, very differently. And this is why you cannot trust these banks. And it's why I'm taking, doesn't matter... How effective this committee is, this inquiry is this year in terms of pushing the banks to do things like Westpac backing down on those eight closures and Commonwealth Bank saying, okay, we'll put... They, it's great they're doing... They're responding to that pressure, but it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. At the end of this inquiry, there must be a recommendation for their worst nightmare, a public bank, because only when they have to face the prospect of losing customers en masse yep. to, a brand, to a bank that's there to provide a service first and foremost, will they... Will that shock get into their head and they realise, okay, we've gone too far. Yeah, and the other reason we need to discuss a public bank is what I want to move on to now, and that is the perils faced by Australia Post in the face of yep. all these bank closures. And this was raised at Senate Estimates on the 24th of the 10th of October, um, being that Australia Post is underfunded for the services they're providing on behalf of banks. Christine Holgate had um, initiated the recompensation for post offices, but since then it's been wheedled back. Um, but also uh, there's a lot of scheduled Australia Post closures, which is going to also cause a bigger problem in a lot of communities to be able to access banking services. Because we've been talking about postal post office closures this year quite a bit, including our local one in Glenroy mm. has closed. But Initially, Elisa, the closures of these post offices announced by Australia Post were corporate post offices, right? And they're the, sort of the bigger ones in the, in the metropolitan areas. What came out last week is now Australia Post has moved beyond corporate post offices and ha intends to close licensed post offices, the small mm. business ones that tend to be in the suburbs and in the country areas. And they, there's 2,850 licensed post offices in Australia. Australia Post is planning to close 10% of those, 10%. So you've got banks winding back their footprint and telling the, the customers to go to Australia Post. And now Australia Post mm. has, has pulled out all the stops and is trying to cut as many post offices as it legally can because there's a service obligation that says they can't fall below mm. 4,000 and a minimum number in the rural areas. 
they're going to take it right back to the bone and they're lobbying to change that service obligation. And they're, what, the way they're shutting these LPOs is they're offering the owners a voluntary licence handback program. In other words, yep. you hand in your licence, shut down shop, and you'll get this... We'll you give know, you 150% of your um, annual income. And the problem <laughs> is because these LPOs have been struggling so much, yep. a they're lot desperate. of them are going to take yep. it. Sure. Um, now, um, Senator Malcolm Roberts from One Nation uh, questioned the chairman or the CEO of Australia Post, Paul Graham, at this Senate Estimates hearing. And we want to run a clip of this because it was, one part in particular was rather interesting uh, in that he talked about the fact that cash is really still important, access to cash through the post office, in this case because of so many banks not being available. And, and I'm going to say it again, even though you'll hear it. He said, the provision of cash has become an issue. Whilst a lot of people say cash is going to die, we certainly don't see that. And, and I'll just preface the clip by pointing out, this is sort of a clip in two parts. So the first part is Malcolm Roberts asking Australia Post to make it public how much the banks pay to use bank, to be represented bank at post, right? And Regular viewers will know this is a figure we've been trying to find out ever since the banks renewed Bank at Post in 2021. Because in 2018, when they originally did the deal with Christine Holgate, they were all very open about the fact they paid $22 million a year. And in 2021, when they renewed it, suddenly it was commercial in confidence. And so in the other inquiry, the bank branch's inquiry, Senator Malcolm Roberts asked them how much they paid. The bank said in that inquiry, um, well, uh, that's commercial and confidence. We'll, we'll answer that on notice. And when they came back, so I won't, pre, I won't, I'll let you listen to Malcolm Roberts, but he reads out the bank's response mm. to that. And then he asks Australia Post the question. And look at how absolutely resistant Australia Post is. And the question is why? What yeah. is Australia Post hiding here? Um, I'll comment on that at the end. But then um, the, 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 the testimony flips because I think what Paul Graham says after that, when he's talking about the broader banking questions, is actually an honest reflection of how Australia Post is dealing with it. All right, so one the clip. My questions are fairly short. At the Senate inquiry into regional bank branch closures, I asked Westpac CEO King, quote, how much do you pay Australia Post for a community representation fee, end of quote. The response on notice was, quote, Westpac is happy to provide a specific figure, including the community representation fee. However, our contract with Australia Post requires both parties to agree to the release of any commercial details within the contract. Westpac would agree to Australia Post providing these details to the committee, end of quote. Are you happy to share those details today or on notice? Uh, Senator, uh, no, we are not. Uh, those are commercially confidential. Uh, we have a number of agreements uh, with many banks and institutions. Uh, they differ uh, from bank to bank, uh, and that would disclose what we believe is commercially sensitive information. So Westpac's happy for you to disclose their contract? Well, uh, again, they may be happy, but that's one side of the, uh, the, the contract. We, 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 we have contracts uh, with uh, over 81 financial institutions and would not be comfortable sharing that uh, sensitive information. I asked the Commonwealth Bank the same question and also I noticed received the same reply as one would expect from an oligopoly. Are you able to share the Commonwealth Bank's community representation fee today or on notice? Uh, no, Senator. We would take the same approach to that. We, as I say, have many contracts with many banks. Uh, it is uh, commercially sensitive uh, and disclosing what one bank pays versus what another bank pays would uh, create commercial risk for Australia Post. And how so? 
Uh, in, that, in that we are negotiating with 81 different companies, uh, and if they were aware of what other companies are paying, then that would put us under a very difficult commercial situation. Show them the high contract, high price contract. Sorry? Show them the, high, the contracts with high representation. It would be good if we could do that, Senator, but that's unfortunate the way that uh, the negotiations would work. Oh, it would help you if you picked the top one. Uh, are you happy with the fees you're receiving from your banking partners in Bank and Post for providing their customers with their services? Uh, Senator, when the Bank of Post Agreement was put in place some three years ago, uh, I think the scope of that was for what we would call rudimentary or very basic consumer banking services, the ability to deposit some money and take out some money. It's fair to say that since uh, uh, you know, uh, that uh, service has been put in place and since we have seen uh, you know, an increase in the uh, number of bank closures, that the pressure that's been placed on uh, our post offices that provide Bank at Post has increased. Customers are looking for a broader scope of services. Small businesses particularly uh, feel that uh, they're not able to access what they would traditionally access through their banking branches. And indeed, the provision of cash has become an issue. Whilst uh, a lot of people say cash is uh, going to die, we certainly don't see that, uh, particularly in certain uh, demographics uh, and also in, 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 in certain neighbourhoods where, where cash is still prevalent. Uh, we, when we were set up, uh, we were never uh, established both from a physical perspective or a, or a service perspective to deal with cash. Uh, we are happy to extend the range of services we provide uh, to uh, customers at Bank at Post, be it small business or the provision of cash, uh, but we would need that to be funded uh, by the banks. A good example is Kubapedi. Uh, it is a cash town, uh, for, uh, given its, uh, the nature of its work. Um, we are now uh, flying cash into that uh, that, that uh, town on, on a weekly basis because we, there, are, there are no banks remaining in Kukupiti. I'm very pleased to hear that you're uh, supporting cash and keeping it alive. A lot of people are starting to swing back now because they know it's essential for freedom. Um, would Australia Post like to offer a wider range of banking services from an existing partner such as Suncorp? If so, what services would you like to provide? Thank you, Senator. I think, uh, as I referred to my previous answer, uh, you know, we are seeing an increasing uh, uh, desire by, uh, by uh, regional towns, particularly when we are the only banking service remaining, uh, to uh, increase the range of services for small business, be that cash floats for the local hairdresser or the local coffee shop. Uh, you know, one example recently of the, the footy team, uh, I think the Country Women's Association both ran a gold coin uh, fundraiser over a weekend and our post office was inundated with 1,800 gold coins on the Monday, but was never equipped to handle that type of, uh, type of cash. Uh, so certainly small businesses, we see there's an ability for us to increase the range of services we provide uh, and for the provision of cash uh, for those small businesses. Uh, however, uh, that would need uh, an investment uh, in some cases in physical infrastructure uh, for safes and security uh, and also additional systems and training for our team. Uh, which we are prepared to do, uh, uh, and, uh, but that would uh, require, obviously, uh, support from the banks to enable those services to be extended. Yeah, so the first part, what is it? What are they hiding? And, uh, and what they're hiding is what we strongly suspect. The banks screwed them down on the fee they pay for Bank of Post, and that's one of the reasons Australia Post is running at a loss. Mm. They let the banks screw them down because the banks... I mean, think how arrogant and just... Um, callous and, and, you know, sort of like the princes of the universe um, these banks think they are, that at the very time they're actually 
shutting branches on mass and saying to their customers, you go to the post office, mm. they're cutting back what they're prepared to pay to the post office to look after their customers. Even though they're saving a mint from shutting they're down saving, everything. Every time they shut, shut a branch, they save about one and a half to two million dollars, mm. right? And they've shut hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of branches, mm. right? And they're paying, they're, they're penny pinching what they're paying Australia Post. But why has the government let that? That's the question. Right? Why has the government let that? Remember, Christine Holgate, it's, by the way, Elisa, Senate Estimates was in the last week. It was the third anniversary of the, assass- mm. the, the character assassination and overthrow of Christine Holgate. Mm. Right? And, and for our long-term viewers will know, this became a real turning point in our organisation. We were the only ones who took that up and asked the question why, mm. and we turned it into a big inquiry, and the Postal Bank campaign came out of that. Yes. But the rest of what Paul Graham said there is really, I, I suspect, is sincere, and he shows you that one of the things he's saying is, look, the public want more services at the post office and we want to provide it, but the banks have to pay. Mm. And of course, they're not going to do that. And so they put these ridiculous limits like in Cooper Pedy, a town where people have to deal literally daily in hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash. And they put ridiculous limits at the post office like 2000 and 7000 deposit withdrawal. And no, the town can't function that way. No. Whereas they could make this an exception in that case, etc. But oh no, don't do anything to help the customer. Now, finally on the banking front... Yep. There was a very important, another important hearing this week, and that was the inquiry into ASIC. Yes, and I think that I think there was a hearing yesterday. Um, I wish we had more time to talk about it, but I want to play two clips to give people the very short clips, just to give people a flavour. I think this was the best hearing so far. There was a lot of powerful testimony there, and in, and in the afternoon, uh, there was like a four punch combination delivered by. Former National Party Senator Bill O'Chee, who was, a, talk about a blast from the past, he actually got an inquiry into ASIC's predecessor in the 90s, and he, what he said was really good. Former ACCC Commissioner um, Alan Fells, the regulator. So Bill Chee's a former senator. Alan Fells, a former regulator. Um, a friend of ours, uh, Dr. Evan Jones, who's, who was a, 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 um, he's a, an economist at Sydney University. He was actually the he was actually Anthony Albanese's economics tutor, and, he's, and, he, and Anthony Albanese is a bitter disappointment to him. Um, but he has been representing bank victims for 25, 30 years, so he testified. And then finally, there's an academic from the University of Wollongong, and we're going to play a clip, his clip, um, who uh, testified, and his name's Professor Andy Schmulo, and boy, was he hard-hitting. But before we play his clip, so these are two short clips. Early on in the day, a whistleblower... Um, Gabriel, I can't remember his surname for now, starting with B, we'll put it on the screen. A whistleblower testified about how he had blown the whistle to ASIC on a um, financial irregularity. He blew the whistle to ASIC saying, you need to look at this. Um, there's a real problem here. Look what happened to him. Run the tape. Finally, I reported to ASIC and to the Australian markets that Tyro had bricked a large web of their payment terminals and had neglected to inform the market for several days, which led to several weeks. And my stories of dealing with ASIC is an extremely alarming one. On the morning of 5th of August 2021, six armed federal police officers wearing ballistics vests stormed my apartment. Had my fiancé not been leaving the apartment to go for a morning walk and by chance opened the door and encountered the officers, I have no doubt they would have used the battering ram they carried to knock my door clean off its hinges. I was frisked despite still being in bed and presented with a warrant which outlined I was being investigated for insider trading stocks of these companies. These companies were in the very, the very same companies Viceroy has whistleblown on two regulators, including Wirecard, Drinkay, and Tyro. 
In Tyra's case, Viso had directly whistleblown to ASIC. During the execution of the search warrants, ASIC explicitly searched for and purposely took copies of Viceroy's entire cloud drive and my personal computer, and my phones were also physically seized. With all of mine and Viceroy's information in their possession, ASIC chose to compel me to attend a compulsory Section 19 interview where I was forced to answer all questions put to me. Prior to the interview, I was also informed that this Section 19 interview carried a gag order of 12 months. Mere weeks after receiving my data and, forced to, and a forced Section 19 interview, ASIC sent, my, sent a no further action letter to my lawyer. This was almost two years ago. My lawyer has for the last two years engaged in correspondence with ASIC to determine whether or not ASIC has destroyed all my data it took from my home in 2021, forcefully. This is despite me never being charged with any crime, nor being under any active investigation by ASIC. To conduct an armed raid on the homes of innocent financial analysts, market pundits, or whistleblowers who raise questions of financial market fraud is harassment. To place those innocent individuals under gag orders for long periods while playing ducks and drakes about whether ASIC retains private data which they seize during armed raids is an egregious abuse of power and clear evidence, I feel, of gross misjudgment or corruption at ASIC as its role as market, re market regulator. So, Lisa, not only does he get raided, he's the whistleblower. He got raided by the federal, by the federal police on behalf of ASIC. After this, what does ASIC do? This, those three, you know, the, the kiss of death, those three letters, its favourite acronym, NFA, no further action, right? I mean, people are now saying, using the word, every time ASIC comes up in these hearings, people are using the word corruption. And then, so we'll go to Professor Andy Schmulo now. And the, 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 um, just the, the bit to know is that the inquiry that the independent economist John Adams got up, like from his report, he wrote a report in ASIC's failure to investigate. And we supported that report and we, we helped campaign with John to get the inquiry up. And John came down a few months ago and we had a good um, Citizens Insight discussion with him about it. Um, one of the things that came out afterwards in Freedom of Information requests that um, uh, when ASIC got this report from John and saw that he was pushing for an inquiry. Internal emails at ASICS actually said, How do, someone said, can we get up a Dorothy Dixer hmm. in Senate estimates to basic, which is a fake question, to give someone an opportunity to grandstand and basically ridicule the report, right? But that, to do that requires a certain amount of collusion between the ASIC officials and politicians. Hmm. Anyway, that's, that's some of the background to what you're going to hear. Listen to this. This is quite unusual um, for Senate estimates. I love this guy because, you know, he didn't hold, I don't hold back sometimes. He certainly didn't hold back. The number of times that the CDPP used the ASIC Act for a prosecution constituted 2.1%. They claim a 97% success rate. Now, for me as a lawyer, members of the public might be impressed by that, but for me as a lawyer, if a lawyer says to me I never lose a case... My response is, well, you don't take on many difficult cases, do you? The cases that they do take on, according to Professor Ramsey, are against, are against individuals in small firms, not corporations. I think we can conclude that the CDPP is under-resourced when it comes to expertise in the Corporations Act and the ASIC Act. But so is ASIC. Mr Justice Perham in ASIC and Westpac said, ASIC doesn't understand or know the law. So between ASIC and the CDPP, you've got two organisations that are across 
86%, 86 out of 900, 86 of the easiest sections to prove because they're administrivia, and the other 814, they don't want to touch because it's too difficult, they're too conservative, and they don't want to lose. I get the impression from reports in the media about uh, conduct exhibited by the leadership of ASIC that the organisation is in a state of chaos. They've lost sight of what they're supposed to do, which is why they run around federal parliament planting Dorothy Dixes, which is an effort to suborn accountability to the democratically elected representatives of we the people. That is scandalous in my view, Senator Bragg. It is outrageous that a Commonwealth authority is seeking to manipulate the questions that it gets asked as a form of accountability. It's unheard of. And I think that because they cannot, because they can't enforce the law, they're running around doing everything else but enforcing the law, lobbying members of parliament, and then refusing to say which members of parliament they've lobbied because apparently that's confidential. It's not confidential. Confidential information is information that relates to a current or imminent case that you're about to run. It does not relate to, to what you are doing on the taxpayer's dime by lobbying the duly elected representatives of We the People. It's an organisation that is out of control. Anyway, that's Professor Andy Shmulo. That's the, this, this inquiry, Elisa, is getting more powerful by the day. And at the end of the day, as Shmulo and certainly um, uh, Evan Jones, I wish we, we, we might do some more stuff with him next week um, in terms of play it on the show, ASIC's corruption is mm. intric- intricately entwined with the bank's. That's why it's like it is. Absolutely. Right, now for a change of pace, we're going to talk about the developments on the war front, which are obviously, um, you know, developing very fast and in a scary way. So our topic is, what is Australia's secret Mideast mission that risks world war? And as we mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the article by... Uh, former officer in the Australian Army for 24 years, Cameron Leckie. Uh, He's written A Price Paid in Blood. Australia secretly deploys to another Middle East war and he's raised a whole host of questions because none of the details about the deployment that has been announced for Australians to head over that way, none of the details have been um, made transparent. But just to preface it with the global situation um, and to remind people that um, world wars have usually or always been Followed. preceded with a financial and economic crisis. Yep. Uh, Mid-1914, a crisis broke out in the United Kingdom which preceded the, the uh, World War One, And, of course, we all know about 1929 and the Great Depression and the impact that had in leading us into World War Two. Now, remember, it's actually a year ago uh, last month that we had the United, the grave United Kingdom bond crisis that, according to experts over there, nearly brought down the entire financial system, at least major superannuation funds and banks. Um, of course, coming into early 2023, uh, we saw a similar situation hitting the United States. And with rising interest rates, uh, a lot of the US banks became insolvent. We started to see... Uh, regional banks collapse. We had other big situations like Credit Suisse in Europe and so forth coming off of that. Um, But basically, the US is committed to continue to raise interest rates, as Powell has made clear, 
Uh, and in the meantime, they're cranking out new debt issues in record issues of new treasury bonds. Um, you have this crowd called bond vigilantes that are actually shorting treasury bonds to drive up yields because they're demanding higher compensation for the risks that they're taking because the US government's taking on all this debt, the economy's stagnating and so forth. But that level of nervousness and with the US debt levels is spreading. We've had, of course, the rating agencies downgrading the uh, US debt. We've had investors getting nervous and we have foreign nations, for instance, um, a reflection of the Chinese view of it came in the Global Times on the 24th of October. Uh, I'll just read it to you because people wouldn't get to see this stuff. There's every reason, said the editorial, to raise a red flag over the abnormal rate performance. Global markets are increasingly concerned about the creditworthiness of US bonds and distrustful of the US economy. The unprecedented mistrust threatens to trigger a storm in the dollar-denominated dollar denominated financial system. Whatever the reason, investors' demand for record high-yield compensation on long-term US Treasury bonds could be a sign that the US economy is one step closer to a devastating crisis, and it is time to prepare for the big storm by making use of the existing Asian and BRICS financial coordination mechanisms, which we've talked about also. And just briefly, to understand the, ser- the seriousness of what the Global Times is saying there, they're not. China has no intention to try and tank the US economy. The US economy is its biggest market, right? It's got no intention to ever do that. But it is really nervous about, I mean, you know, after the GFC, China, China bought a trillion dollars in bonds, mm. right? US bonds, because... You know, it, it's in this symbiotic relationship with the US market. But it is genuinely nervous about what the United States is doing to itself. So it's, 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 it's part of the... De- it, wants to, it wants the de-dollarisation thing to work slowly and carefully. Mm. But they're very, very nervous. And they're reducing their bond holdings yeah. quite significantly. Continuing. And I want to reference also another reflection from Russia. And these were very serious comments by... Russian President Putin, Vladimir Putin on the 30th of, of October to his uh, Security Council with military and security agencies present. And he talked about the fact that the United States as a global superpower is becoming weaker and is losing its position. And he said you can judge that against the backdrop of the trends in the world economy, which is reference to this economic crisis that's going on. Now, he brought that into the war situation, as we want to do. He said, I want to repeat that those behind the Middle East conflict and other regional conflicts will be using the destructive impact of these conflicts to sow hatred and cause clashes between people around the world. This is the real self-serving aim of such geopolitical puppeteers. And as I said, that's why you see a financial crisis ahead of world wars, is because the geopolitics that comes into play when you have a power that is backed by the financial order in place, yeah. once yeah. it starts to crumble, you know, then they have to pull all sorts of other things into gear. Uh, so and plus it's an excuse for them to print money again. Uh, yeah, for sure. So he said, basically, uh, the United States is unwilling to accept this, that, that their hegemony is being destroyed, and instead seeks to preserve and extend its dominance, its global dictatorship, which is easier to achieve amid such chaos because the United States believes this chaos will help it contain and destabilise its rivals, or as they put it, their geopolitical opponents, among which, of course, Russia ranks. Yep. So um, that's the backdrop. Now, let's talk about uh, Cameron Leckie's article because 
as we noted, Australia is apparently involving itself yeah, so in Albanese, another... Albanese was in Washington and suddenly back here, Richard Miles makes an announcement that we're se sending over an unspecified... So we're sending over some aircraft and an unspecified but significant number of personnel, personnel to the Middle East. And then in the language, it made it... You want, they wanted the public to think that this may be something to do mm. with protecting civilians, i.e. evacuating people out. But Cameron Leckie's point is, well, if that's the case, that doesn't have to be kept secret, mm. right? Yep. So what actually are they doing and what are they intending to participate in? Mm. And I want to give one example of why this is right to be suspicious, Elisa, because we've, we've been you know, at this a while. Back in Australia's forces, because we've got this relationship with the United States and the United Kingdom, they're used for all sorts of things we have no clue about. And this was an example that was back in 2003 when, when we invaded Iraq. George Bush very publicly gave Saddam Hussein like a 48-hour ultimatum to leave the country with his sons or something like that. Or we're coming in, right? 48-hour ultimatum. Of course, Saddam didn't do that and the invasion happened. Afterwards, it was revealed that our Australian SAS was in, had already gone into Iraq mm -hmm. long before the ultimatum um, expired. In fact, probably even before Bush had made the, had given the ultimatum, mm. right? So Australia had pre-invaded the invasion and nobody knew at the time the invasion was always going to happen, whatever Saddam Hussein did, basically. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, you know, that's an example of why you see an announcement like this and you go, okay, what's really going on? Mm. So Leckie points out, look, Australia can once again find itself in a war in the Middle East very soon, in days or weeks. This could become a, <clears throat> a global war. And he lays out a bunch of the parameters, and among which is the fact that you already have over 70 US and NATO warships, including four yeah. aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean. And he asks these questions. Again, you can uh, get the alert service to see the detail, but he asks what force elements are being deployed where are those forces being deployed? What is the command and control relationship, uh, for instance, with the US, with NATO or with Israel? Um, if the conflict becomes regional, how will Australia respond? If ADF personnel become casualties, will that be an excuse to increase our involvement? Why are Australia's diplomatic efforts to reduce tensions and end the conflict so pathetic and hypocritical? Uh, what role does US domestic politics play in this unfolding crisis? Yeah. Why do we focus on proximate issues rather than root causes? And other sideline things like, is Australia prepared for oil prices to soar? And finally, and, mo and I've skipped over yeah. some of them, but most importantly, he asks, when will the parliament get a say as to whether Australia involves itself in another overseas armed conflict? Cameron Leck is part of the Australian for War Powers Reform movement, which our party fully endorses because we have this ridiculous... You know, the American president cannot declare war. The US Congress has to declare war. But we have the British system where basically the monarch unilaterally does it. Mm. Right In Australia, it's the prime minister operating with the governor general. Why doesn't parliament have a say in this? Um, now these are the, these are the important questions, and and because we're talking about um, Cameron, uh, his Cameron Leckie's article, I want to cite an article that he wrote last year because he's a very astute observer with his military experience, and he took up he took to task last year the, these hysterical claims about Russia's war crimes in Ukraine, um, and it's relevant now because what's triggering this? What we're seeing happening in Gaza, 
right, which we're told are not war crimes. Our side, who accuse Russia of war crimes, are not saying they're war crimes, right? But we can see in front of our eyes what's happening in Gaza. It is undeniable. But what, what were we being told about Ukraine? What you'd see is a picture of, a, of an apartment with a, a room blown out, right? And the news report, this is what Cameron, uh, Cameron Leckie showed last year. The news report would say um, the Russians hit this city with um, 60 missiles, um, deliberately targeting civilians and killed two people. And Cameron Leckie's point was, if 60 missiles have flown in and only two people have died, by definition, they're not targeting civilians. Mm. They're doing the opposite of targeting civilians. But we had this twisted reporting mm. for the last two years about that operation. What we're seeing in front of our eyes mm. is absolutely indiscriminate. Oh, it doesn't... And, and it's just happened in the Jabalaya, I think it's called... Um, I mean, the, the Israeli spokesmen have said it themselves. The biggest refugee camp in the world, this Jabalaya, I think it's called, Hamas leader was there. Mm. Yeah, we knew the civilians were in the way and there were hundreds of them, just bomb it anyway, mm. right? And that doesn't matter. Now, speaking of Ukraine, and we, we have an important update on that too because, um, as you said, it's just been a wall of lies. Now, there's certain signs now, of course, everyone that's, happening. Every, everyone that's been watching closely has known that the war's been over for Ukraine for a long time, but that, of course, hasn't but been we admitted. Were told, but we were told, <laughs> no, no, Ukraine's... We, we, we're, the, with the arms we're giving Ukraine, they're winning. Those Russians, they made the mistake of their life. Mm. Look, Ukraine's winning. They're plucky Ukrainians. Ignore their swastika tattoos and whatever. They're really winning. They're really great. That's what we were told. All the experts were saying, hang on, that's rubbish. Well, now, yeah. look so, at Time magazine. Yeah, we'll put up this um, picture of the front page of Time magazine on Zelensky. And this is the closest um, the media has come to admitting Ukraine is defeated, that support from overseas is waning, including in Washington. Um, and, of course, you've seen the Republicans split in the Congress in the USA over funding. Um, there's been all kinds of you know, domestic blow-ups over there over the issue. Um, but this article documents, uh, it's quite extensive, you know, the situation inside Ukraine itself with numerous firings by Zelensky, including top people such as the defence minister, the corruption in the ranks. You know, you've got other, this story doesn't go into, into it so much, but there's other stories coming out about the drugs going through the ranks of the military and so forth. Um, but uh, the interviewer talks to a number of top people, and uh, for instance, one of Zelensky's closest aides told the interviewer, he deludes himself. We're out of options. We're not winning, but try telling him that. There's frontline commanders that are apparently refusing orders because they have no choice. They don't have the men, they don't have the weapons, so they're having to refuse orders. People should look up this, this article. Time, this article's, you just look it up, mm. this, this article on Time magazine, and read it for yourself. The bottom line is this, Elisa. They are, this article has one purpose. They're preparing the propaganda brown, groundwork to cut Zelensky loose. It's all over for him. When the American chief propaganda magazine Time is saying this, it means everything we were, you were told for two years, the Americans can't concentrate on two things at once. Israel's now the issue for them. They have to ask, they, 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 they've got all sorts of fantasies about escalating around Israel. So sorry. And all these US congressmen that were saying, oh, we're going to spend all this money on Ukraine, we're going to be with them to the end. No, nah, it's over. Mm. And they are cutting him loose. When they're saying he, delu- when, when Time magazine is reporting he deludes himself, he was deluding himself the first day. Mm-hmm. 
right? And he's in, after all, he's an actor that he's only ever read the script they gave him, and now they're going to try and pin it on him. So everything Albanese said, everything Penny Wong has said, everything Jacinda Ardern said, and the New Zealanders said, and supporters Zelensky, all those people going to see Zelensky, the whole charade is about to come to an end. What's this space? Because the Middle East is now the really big, dangerous um, area. Yep. And, you know, those geopolitical games are going to keep raging until we get the cooperation together, as is beginning to roll out with BRICS and other countries to begin to work together to correct the problems that have brought us into this economic crisis. And, and actually, Elisa, in terms of people who... In terms of the danger of world war, unfortunately, as, as, as dangerous as Ukraine and Russia was, mm. on, on, the, on the, the far edges of both sides, you had people... Putin on one side, and hopefully you would think since some people who are capable of being sensible on the American side who knew that if those two countries ever fight at each other, that's World War III. The danger of World War III coming out of the Middle East is even graver, right? Because if the Americans and the British keep backing the Israelis to the hilt without question and, and the babies keep dying on, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, the whole... The, the moving parts of the Middle East, you've got mm. big armies in Iran, big armies in Turkey, etc. They're all talking really, really um, uh, angrily about what's going on, right? And it's probably as dangerous as the world's ever seen it. And um, I'll end on this thought. A friend of mine who is actually Jewish and is from South Africa um, originally, and when this first started up, you know, he, he, he spoke about it and I was... I had to learn something because he had a different perspective than me based on the fact he's got a Jewish background and he, he saw things differently and um, thought, okay, well, you know, that's, that's, how, that's why there's conflicts in the world. But then he himself came, came back um, a week or so ago with, with another idea. He said, look, the only, we've got to be thinking about peace and the only way that you're going to bring peace is you've got to get more honest brokers in there. Mm. America is too biased. He, he, he was really disgusted at Biden calling Hamas the other team right, in, in, when he went to Israel. He said, America's too biased. He said, maybe what we need to do is get the Americans and the Brits and that out of there and get the, um, the Chinese, the Indians and the, the, the Saudis in there to be the brokers for peace. Anyway, it was an interesting idea, but it's, it's got to be something different than what's well, been done because right now it's really, really dangerous. There is good motion in that direction from the BRICS and other parties exactly. beginning if to work. If anyone can do it, they can do it. Yeah, so... Do contact us for more information and to get more involved as much as you can. Thanks for tuning in. That's all we got for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, and Lisa. we'll see you again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.